Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. This morning we find ourselves finally back in the book of Acts. The context that we find ourselves in is Paul has left Greece and Macedonia and he is now on his way back to Jerusalem to offer report among other things. So remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, notice the we, Luke is now with Paul making this journey. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, urged Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he, Paul, would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the homes of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that, had, that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been strangled, I'm sorry, what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, in the midst of a very difficult 
and tragic week in Afghanistan, you might have seen in the news that this past Wednesday, two congressmen, one Republican and the other a Democrat, took an undisclosed and unsanctioned trip um, to Afghanistan to personally observe the U.S. military's evacuation efforts. And when word of that trip leaked out, the two men were heavily criticized by people on both sides of the aisle. One Democratic lawmaker said that he was shocked to hear about this trip and that it should have never have happened. The Republican House Minority Leader criticized the trip because it put them in jeopardy. You've got enough Americans over there that could be held hostage. They, the Taliban, they, the Taliban would love to make a point out of a member of Congress. In other words, given the extreme danger, the extreme danger of this area, it was not a place that, that they needed to go. Now, I'm not taking a position on this, whether it was good or bad or right or wrong. I'm just sharing the fact that the trip made by these two lawmakers received heavy criticism because, at least in part, of the significant risk that it posed to their lives. And so there was lots of backlash when they got back. And there was lots of backlash when the Apostle Paul announced his intention to take what would be an extremely difficult and dangerous trip. A trip so dangerous and so risky that everyone in Paul's orbit told him, urged him, pleaded with him in tears not to go. There was absolutely no need for the apostle to the Gentiles to put himself in harm's way to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't his focus. Jerusalem was in the east. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. His focus, his concern was in the west, in Greece, in Macedonia, in Rome, and in Spain. That's where Paul needed to be. But he took a trip to Jerusalem after completing his third missionary journey. This is the trip that got Paul arrested and essentially stopped all in-person missionary activity for a number of years. You know, if we had a map here, instead of making the relatively short and easy trip by boat from Corinth or Athens right over to Rome, which is a place that Paul really wanted to go, instead of doing that as a free man, Paul goes to Jerusalem, ultimately gets arrested, and is sent to Rome in chains. As I said, Paul went despite the fact that many disciples, including prophets, pled with him not to go. In fact, the Holy Spirit even directly testified to Paul what awaited him if he went to Jerusalem on this trip. Here's what Paul himself had to say about this trip as he got underway after he left Corinth and Ephesus and headed east toward Jerusalem. In Acts 20, verses 22 through 24, you can just listen to me. Paul said, And now behold, I am determined in spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He didn't know all that would happen, but he did know one thing would happen. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. In other words, persecution and prison. 
Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account or as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. The Holy Spirit not only testified to others, but to Paul directly. Here's what's going to happen to you if you take this trip. So Paul continues east. When he makes it to the Mediterranean coast, in Acts 21, verse 4, which just precedes the text we have in our bulletin, Luke records the following. Luke writes, And having sought out the disciples at Tyre, that's about a hundred miles north of Jerusalem, and having sought out the disciples at Tyre, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So the disciples were receiving information from the Holy Spirit completely consistent with what the Holy Spirit had said to Paul. Here's what's going to happen to you if you go. The prophecies get more intense and more specific the closer that Paul gets to Jerusalem. Okay? Picking up in the passage that's printed in your bulletin. Go to verse 8. 21 verse 8. Now they're in Caesarea. That's just 50 miles north of Jerusalem. Look at Acts 21, verse 8. On the next day, we... Again, Luke is there. Luke is chronicling everything that happens. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, meaning one of the seven deacons that were ordained at the beginning of Acts. We stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay, we can infer from that that they're prophesying the same thing that others had prophesied and that Paul himself had prophesied. Look at verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, probably from Jerusalem. And coming to us, this is interesting, he, Agabus, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go. The we there includes Luke, who wrote Luke, who, write the, who wrote the book of Acts. Timothy is there well, as well, pleading with him not to go. Verse 13, Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. Okay, the people there were weeping. They were pleading with him not to go. Paul writes, or Paul said, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, Luke writes, and since he would not be persuaded, he wouldn't be deterred from this, we ceased. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done, I ask you, what was so important about this trip? That the Apostle Paul was literally willing to risk everything to go. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has planted church, churches all over the Roman Empire. It was his goal to go to Rome and then to Spain. He was one of the most significant figures, maybe the most important person in the early church. And so why in the world would he risk everything and put his life at risk to go to Jerusalem? Why here? Why now? I want you to hold on to that for just a minute. We're going to come back to it. 
Let's continue in the story. See what happens when he finally got there and how he responded to what happens. Look at verses 17 through 22. Okay, so he probably spent a few months getting back to Jerusalem from uh, Corinth and Athens and the Ephesus area. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, finally the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, this is a significant meeting. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, okay? It says James and the elders, not James and the apostles. The apostles are out and about, ministering in a variety of contexts, preaching and teaching about Jesus. Okay, they're, they're, they're scattered throughout. So this is James and the other elders who are present in the church in Jerusalem, and they're having this significant meeting. Verse 19, after greeting them, he, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, Incredible job, Paul. You have done amazing things. We are so thankful for you. You have one of the toughest jobs there is. Is, is that in the text? That is not in the text. So very soon thereafter, glorifying God, celebrating what had happened, James changes the subject, okay? And you can imagine in Paul's mind, this is kind of an abrupt change, okay? They should be celebrating all that God had done all over the Roman Empire, and instead, James brings up something else, kind of interrupts the momentum here. Verse 20, it's kind of a non sequitur, right? And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, uh, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James is like, that's great. We do praise God that these Gentiles have come to know the Lord Jesus, but Paul, you have walked into a hornet's nest. When people hear that you've come, we're going to have a big, big, big problem. Because what had happened is that there was this um, concerted effort, this organized misinformation campaign that was being waged against the Apostle Paul, most likely by the Judaizers that had opposed Paul in almost every city that he went to. And they lied. They were misrepresenting Paul, okay? Misrepresented his teachings. Paul did not teach the Jews that they were not allowed to follow the customs of Moses. Paul didn't teach any Jews in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi or Berea. He never told the Jews in those areas that they had to totally forsake their former way of life. He never told any of them that they couldn't or shouldn't circumcise their children. I'm sure he said it's not required for salvation, but he didn't tell the Jews that you have to forsake who you are as a people. That was a misrepresentation on the part of the Judaizers, most likely, trying to undermine Paul. What did Paul teach when he went about on his missionary endeavors? His main job was to tell the Gentiles 
that they didn't have to follow the laws of Moses to be saved. They didn't have to circumcise their children in order to be considered part of the people of God. That was Paul's focus. He never told the Jews that they could not continue and engage in the customs of their people. And so James, the brother of Jesus, comes up with a fascinating solution, okay, to deal with this and to get out ahead of it, okay? He had a solution that would calm the tension and alleviate the concerns of the Christian Jews. There were now at this point, let's say 55, 56 AD, okay, so let's say 25 years, 26 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, 25 years later, in Jerusalem, okay, like the hotbed of persecution, there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews who had bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. But they were in the cultural epicenter of Judaism. And so they had continued many of the laws of Moses, and so they were very upset by this misrepresentation that they had heard about Paul. So listen to James's solution. It's ingenious. Verse 23. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Obviously, a wonderful founder of the early church. James says, Do therefore, Paul, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, this is going to be a Nazarite vow, most likely. A Nazarite vow was a season of time where you showed special dedication and focus to God. You would shave your head and at the end of a period of days, you would make a significant offering to the temple. Okay? And it was, a, it was a time to really focus your heart on the Lord. And so there were four men who were engaging in this kind of vow. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. Okay? Because Paul was probably viewed to some degree to be unclean because he had been in Gentile lands. So this would kill two birds with one stone. Okay, he could associate them himself with this, with this vow and purify himself at the same time. He wasn't going to shave his head, but he was going to participate with them in some way. James says in 24, Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their head. So you would take this vow, shave your head, consecrate yourself to God, and give a huge donation at the end to the temple. So James was saying... Okay, to prove to people that you're not anti-Moses, take part in this vow, purify yourself, and finance the offering made at the end. That will put all of this to rest. He says um, in verse 24, James says, Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Meaning, you don't think it's wrong for Messianic Jews to also walk in some of these customs, okay? And so Paul does it. Verse 25, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment, this is a sermon for another day, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. In other words, they weren't told to circumcise their children, these Gentiles, but they were told to honor a few things. Again, that's a sermon for another day. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. He went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So why did Paul go along with this? 
Okay, Paul never wanted to be told what to do as it related to the law. Why wasn't Paul worried that this would give the wrong impression to do this? Because he was a person who understood his Christian freedom. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said to the Jew, when I'm among the Jews, I live like a Jew. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. When I'm living among the Gentiles, I live like a Gentile. Becoming like a Gentile. Why? So that I can become what? All things to all men that in doing this I might save some. In other words, I'm not going to get caught up and distracted by these secondary issues. I'm going to focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to allow the people of God to be split up like this. Why did Paul do this? Why did Paul take on this vow? Paul took on this vow because he loved the church. He was willing to sacrifice his life because he loved the church so much, which goes back to the opening question. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem okay, and risk his life and risk persecution and risk arrest and risk death to go to Jerusalem? The text doesn't even say. Do you know why he went? What he was there to do? He was not there to preach the gospel. What was Paul there to do? What was worth him risking his life? Paul had spent years collecting money from the Gentile churches that he had planted to offer a significant financial gift to the church in Jerusalem to alleviate the believing poor in Jerusalem because there was a famine. A famine had racked the land. So Paul thought it was important, in fact worth giving his life for, to raise money and collect money at these various churches and to personally, as the apostle to the Gentiles, bring this gift to the church in Jerusalem to care for the believing poor there. Why did Paul risk his life to go to Jerusalem? Paul risked his life because he loved the church. He was willing to sacrifice everything because he loved the people of God. My friends, I don't know about you, but that is very, very convicting to me. If Paul was willing to do that, if Paul was willing to give his life because of his love for the church, how is God calling us to love our local expression of the church? You know, it's kind of a comparison from a greater to a lesser. If Paul could do that for the church, what are you and I called to do for the ministry of the local church? It's very convicting to me. How is the Apostle Paul's love for the church a challenge for us? I mean, this ultimately got Paul arrested. It took away years of in-person missionary activity because he got arrested. And ultimately, in the providence of God, he got sent to Rome where he was in chains. He gave up everything because of his love for the church. We see what his love for the church led him to do. What does a love for the local church look like for you and me? 
What does service to the local church look like for you and for me? First, I want to just thank you. You know, we are still here, Providence Presbyterian Church, because of the innumerable hours that so many have, of you have given to serving our little church. Serving in nursery, serving in Sunday school, serving in hospitality, showing up with your attendance, okay, taking meals to families, showing love and regard and care for the Lord's people. And I just can't thank you enough. You have been the living embodiment of what Paul displays in Acts chapter 21 in his great love for the church. I'm overwhelmed by a sense of gratitude by how much you have given of your time and your talents and your resources. We wouldn't be here if it were not for people like you and your love for the church. But I'm going to end with shocker, another sports illustration, okay? You know, after the long grind of a season, you know, professional teams, college teams normally get a, a summer off or a period of time off where they can recharge and recover and convalesce and lick their wounds and get a break. But the hardest part of every year is when you come back together at the end of August and the fall, okay, and you've got to recommit yourself to another season because you know that it's going to be long and difficult. And so here we are, okay? We're beginning another season, okay? We've got the full slate of the fall and the spring in front of us. If Paul could give his life out of his love for the local church, it's not too much for us to give in our ways, our small ways, to the local church. This is the local expression of the church for us in Dallas. Prayerfully consider how the Lord might want you to give of your life to this church this upcoming school year. Obviously, we're not, I mean, like, we're not in a position, thankfully, where we have to literally give our life or risk being arrested. Okay, but God calls us to a sacrifice nonetheless. It's our calling to continue to build into this church, not just for us, but for generations of people down the line. People that will hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, high and holy, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. That's not just going to automatically happen. The more we give now, the more we ensure that Jesus Christ will be preached on the street corner many, many years from now. We need you. We need your involvement. We need your participation. Even if we get all the slots filled, it's not really just about that, about teaching in Sunday school and signing up to help coffee and things like that. We need you here. We need you coming to Sunday school. We need you participating in the Bible studies. Okay, not just so that you can receive the Word of God, so that you can give of your time, so that you can invest in other people. You have so many gifts that you can use to build up this tiny little expression of the local church. It's a privilege. 
that we get to hear Christ preached all the time. We get to enjoy the sacraments. We have a phenomenal facility. If Jesus gave his life for the church, if Paul risked everything for the local church, beloved, this fall and this spring, what is God calling us to give to the ministry of Providence Presbyterian Church? Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and we praise you for, for the amazing local expression of your church that you've given to us. Father, you have taken people who apart from Jesus would have never known each other, would have never met each other. Father, because of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of all the things that transpired in the passage that we looked at today, we're here, we're now, we're together as a church. Um, he was willing to give his life to, to, to foster unity and brotherly love among Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem. Father, we come from all different backgrounds, um, all different kinds of people. Father, display the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ this upcoming school year at Providence Presbyterian Church. People that just would have never come together, would have never taken an interest in each other. Help us to prove that the gospel is true by loving each other, by caring for each other, by being the church to each other. Father, we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen and amen.